Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Today we'll be in chapter 29. To begin, we need to remember that chapters 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31 are more or less a unit. So if we remember from chapter 27, we saw that David was caught between a rock and a hard place because he'd gotten away from Saul, who was trying to kill him, by running off to the Philistines of all people. David deceived the Philistine king of Gath, Achish, as he marauded multiple remote non-Philistine pagan cities, but telling Achish that these cities were Israelite cities, ruthlessly leaving no survivors in those places who could ever then reveal the truth. The deceit and marauding did pay big dividends for David and his men for 16 months. David was very successful in convincing the Philistine king that he was completely and impossibly estranged from Israel and King Saul. Achish then made a demand which put David in an impossible situation. Achish wanted David and his men to fight with him and the other Philistine kings in an impending war with Israel. Chapter 28 began with this impending disaster right on the horizon. David could be fighting with the Philistines against his own people. This would forever brand him as a traitor, and imperil his future reign on the throne of Israel. So the text left us hanging right there in chapter 28 at the beginning with what will David do? How can he get out of this? But inserted right there in this hair-raising story, we are suddenly presented with Saul's dilemma in chapter 28. Why? The author wanted us to put David's dilemma and Saul's dilemma side by side. Last Sunday we learned from Saul's dilemma that there is something far worse than being caught among the Philistines, like David was, and that being cut off from all communication with God is so much worse. Chapter 28 ends with Saul leaving a medium that he went to in Endor in the darkness of the night, trying to find out the future, which is a picture of the utter hopelessness and his hopeless condition, talking about Saul's soul. When Samuel told Saul in chapter 28, verse 19, that Saul would be with him tomorrow, 
He meant that Saul would be in the realm of death, among the dead, not among the living. And in that section of chapter 28, Samuel, who God has brought back from the dead to deliver the same message to Saul that he had told him when he was living, Samuel is not saying that Saul is an Old Testament believer. Nothing is so bitterly and despairingly miserable than finding in the hour of your greatest need that you had long ago placed yourself beyond the sound of God's voice and that now you must face this impossible situation knowing that you are totally alone. Not truly giving his life to the Lord is what Samuel, is what Saul really needed. But now he's totally alone. So we have David's impossible-looking situation of being called, demanded, by the king he was finding refuge in, the Philistines, to fight alongside Philistines against his own people. And side by side, that dilemma is Saul's dilemma. He is faced with an, an army with thousands and thousands and thousands of men even chariots. And he is so badly outnumbered. And he is scared to death for a good reason. But God will not answer his prayers. Saul is not a believer. He is alone, terrified in the darkness of his own soul. So, seeing these dilemmas side by side, Saul's dilemma puts David's dilemma in perspective. Yes, David's trial is still huge, but the difference is that David's dilemma is not hopeless. The hope lies in the fact that we know who David belongs to and what the Lord has promised to do with him. Saul, on the other hand, never gave himself to, never really believed in the one that he actually did know was the Lord. Now in chapter 29, the text turns back to David's seemingly impossible situation. And we'll see how David is delivered from the Philistines, by the Philistines, and what we can learn about God in this chapter. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 29 from the English Standard Version. This is one of the shorter chapters here. It's only 11 verses. 1 Samuel 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces in Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commander of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? 
And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sang to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now before we get into the story in more depth, the first thing we need to notice since we're talking about the comparison of Saul's dilemma and David's dilemma is to notice how chapter 28 ended. I mentioned it already, but the author does these things on purpose, you know. Then he, Saul, who had just been with this medium and was terrified out of his wits, rose and went away when? That night. And here we just read a chapter where we see how David's going to be delivered. We didn't expect this. He didn't expect this. But you notice how this chapter ends? So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. In the end of verse 10, depart as soon as you have light. Again, a very apt, striking contrast. Saul is in the dark, and he will be forever. And David leaves and is rescued in the light. Well, let's look at the sequence of events here in chapter 29, and it's fairly easy to follow. 
First, the Philistine commanders object to the Israelites' presence. In the first three verses, there were five Philistine kings from the five major Philistine cities. And Achish was the king from Gath, the hometown of Goliath, remember? These commanders' objections, let's be honest, were wise, they were understandable, and they were probably valid. Then Achish tries to explain, starting in the last half of verse 3. Wow. He had been completely deceived by David, by David's cleverness. He was clueless. And then thirdly, the Philistines' commander would, commanders wouldn't have any of it. They announced their decision because they suspected David's loyalty in verses 4 and 5. These commanders stuck to their suspicions. It was just too great a risk. And then fourthly, Achish communicates the commander's decision to David in verses 6 and 7. Achish rehashes to David what he thought about him and how much he respected him. Achish was totally convinced of David's honesty. In other words, he really thought he had David in his pocket. But he still had to deliver the commander's final decision and tells David to leave and go back. Fifthly, David objects in verse 8. And this is really the only conversation here in this chapter in which the intent, what David really meant, is debatable. In other words, what did David really mean here? Remember, this is the part where he says this in verse 8. David said, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered into your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? So what did he really mean? Well, there's, there's really two possibilities here. First, some think that David was just going forward with his false loyalty and just to see and hope it played out somehow. And the second possibility is others believe that David's objection was phrased in such a way that Achish would not be aware of what David really meant. There's some word play here. Let's see what, the, what we mean by that. In other words, Achish would not understand by David, the way he phrased his objection, that David was indeed planning to turn on them in the battle and deliver a decisive blow for Israel. That is possible. This would mean that the Philistines' lord, the lords there, those guys were right on the mark in not letting him go. And when David said he wanted to fight the enemies of my lord, the king, Achish assumed that Saul was the enemy, and he, Achish, was my lord, the king, to David. But did David, could he have used this language to mean exactly the opposite? To hide what he was going to do? 
to hide the reality that Achish was really the enemy and that my lord the king was still Saul. David usually did address Saul as my lord the king. The bottom line here, have fun with it. No one knows really what the intent was. And that's interesting to me because that's not the real issue in this text. God doesn't get us, want us to get so off trying to figure out what David's intent was, although that is fun to do, that we miss the point of what he does. And so he kind of leaves us here wondering about it. The bottom line here is that we just don't know for sure what David's true intentions were because he didn't end up going to the battle. Then Achish answers sixthly and explains his position again, telling David to go back to the city, you notice, that was assigned to him, which was what? Ziklag in the southern part of their territory. Verses 9 and 10, and David and his men leave in the morning for Ziklag. Where all of the families were of him and his 600 soldiers with him. Now we discover in this chapter really at least three vital and very encouraging truths about the Lord. Even though the only person who mentions the Lord in this whole chapter is the pagan Philistine king of Gath, Achish, and one of the other commanders. Irony. That says something, though, that we'll get to in just a moment. In other words, this is not a story of David getting a very clear but lucky break. And you hear that said all the time. There is no luck in here. This is not luck. It's designed and written ultimately by the Holy Spirit, but through the author to communicate that God is the one who delivers here. This is just then another account, one of many in this book already, of the Lord God's Almighty's deliverance of his anointed king, David. And we should, by now, be more and more amazed as we see this. We should be more and more amazed by God's mercy and his grace to David. And we should realize, as we think about this, that all these strange and sometimes very confusing and literally crazy circumstances that David has found himself in are not beyond God's purview. An old word that means under the range, God's range and scope of authority, of his intention and ability to act. It's not beyond him. He just didn't throwing up his hands and go, oh no, look what mess David got himself into now. What do I do? What do I do? God does not wring his hands over these things. And that's what we see in this text. God works all things to accomplish his purposes and his will. We just aren't on his time schedule and seeing that truth. 
Yes, David's actions in this case of taking matters into his own hands and being clever and having once again seen the consequences that his actions have brought that not only threaten his life, but also the lives of his 600 men with him and their families, not to mention the threat of him being seen as a traitor by his own people, Israel, which would indeed threaten the future reign as the king of Israel. That's all true. And this, this was a consequence of his lack of trust. But not all of his scrapes have been because of his lack. Some are, some aren't. Other things have just happened. But God wants us to see these instances for lots of reasons. This that we've talked about, his situation here and what's on the line, these are very real and present realities for David and his men. This is not something he's sitting off somewhere going, oh, if I do this, this will happen, and if I do this, this might happen, and oh, what will happen? This is, he is in the middle of this, faced with it. And you know yourself what it's like to be faced by circumstances that literally blow your mind and terrify you. That's where David is. But you see, we know something. We know that it is the Lord, God, Almighty, who works through these situations to actually deliver David. The question for us as we are confronted with this account is, what can we learn about God in these events that will help us know him better? Well, one of them is that even though he is barely mentioned in this chapter, God is quietly present. You notice, tried to say that positively? Because what do we say in these kind of situations? We usually don't rise up and say, oh, God is quietly present. We're so terrified, we're going... Where are you? Which over half the Psalms scream out. How long, O Lord? Do not depart from me, O Lord. By the way, David wrote most of those Psalms. Wonder where he learned these lessons. We don't need a punchline or a heading that says, look, the Lord is here delivering his servant again. Some of you want that, but that's not how the Bible is written, is it? Perhaps the Lord's intention is to make us ask questions because it seems not to make everything immediately obvious is the intent of this chapter. Everything is not immediately obvious. But the Lord's intention probably is to make us ask questions simply because these events, in principle, are so strikingly similar 
to our own struggles. Struggles in which we way too often don't think correctly about them at all. So we become enslaved to the struggle itself and can't see anything else at all but what's going on right here. Isn't that true? This passage speaks to that tendency that we all have. And it's meant to get our eyes off of something in a way that we can see God acting even when he looks like he's not there or he won't answer like we want him to. There should not be a person in this congregation who is wondering whether God is behind all this in chapter 29, hopefully. Every separate biblical text does not need to be explicitly clear as to God's governance and his providence. Many times we've already been told that the Lord was with David. In chapter 18, 12, and 28, just one of many There is no indication in chapter 29 or elsewhere that the author thinks this deliverance is just luck. So we cannot go there. Dale Ralph Davis writes, As you ponder the ground you've traveled in your own life, the murky stuff the Lord has carried you through, or that you may begin right now, the twists and turns of your life, Can't you see the glimpses of his silent mercy, of his quiet care? There was no noise or tempest. The Lord was there in chapter 29, but not so obviously. Why then does God so often work in this kind of quiet, subdued way? That's a pastoral question. I say that because this is the question every one of us really has deep down inside. Many professing believers demand that God provide an audible like amber alert about every single detail of life. We demand it. There's there's got to be a formula somewhere that I haven't found yet. Or there's got to be a secret code in the Old Testament text that will unlock the exact dates that every prophecy will be fulfilled. Too bad David was still in the dark about exactly when he'd be on the throne until it happened. There's got to be a loophole somewhere in Scripture that will allow me to feel okay about the sin. I just don't want to give up. The Bible is supposed to be a manual with an index that I can troubleshoot anything and everything with. Yes, technology has served us, but when we start thinking the Bible is a manual, if you've got this problem, you turn to this page, this paragraph, and it's answered right there, and that's it. There might be principles there, and it might be addressed right there, but you put the whole thing together, and you get an incredible picture that you did not expect that puts your problems in a perspective that you probably did not have when you started that search. The problem with this kind of thinking, and I use that term lightly, thinking, is that it's all about what I want and prefer. It makes demands on God to do certain things that I've decided will meet my wants and desires. 
It dictates to God what his acceptable behavior should be, including when I don't want him around or interfering. It tells God that his timetable is just not acceptable with me, and it makes me God and him just a servant to make my life what I want it to be. But God often works in ways that don't increase in volume when life's circumstances pile up on us. He tells us he's good and faithful, but then he lets us discover how true that is. And every teacher in here, and there are many, and every parent in here, and there are many, know that your students learn better when they know up here the facts and they discover it for themselves in a lab. We live our lives sort of in a lab, do we not? God proved his love for us. So when we question it, what do we forget? A cross. If I have to think and struggle with an issue, there's much more likelihood that I'd be led to true worship. Instead of trite and shallow attendance, if I know God this way, if I've, as we've learned in Sunday school this morning, met him, My thinking and my heart should come together when I find out how good and faithful the Lord really is. And the Bible becomes a book to dive into instead of just a spiritual homework assignment to learn facts. Facts are important. But it's not to make our heads blow up with pride. The Lord made me, and he knows how to get my attention and keep it. He knows what I really need. Do you believe the Lord made you? He knows how to get your attention and keep it. And He knows what you really need. That's the first thing that this chapter should be screaming out at us. God is quietly present, whether we believe it or not. Whether there's any evidence or not. The second thing that screams out of this chapter is that this chapter is another example of that God's ways are so boring. God's ways are so surprising. Not boring. You know any people that always surprise you? And we're not talking about whacked or off center or on something. Just people that surprise you with their grace, their thoughtfulness, their timing. Just in some time of life, they call, they come by, they send a message, they send you something. They do something surprising, and it encourages you more 
than anything else some other people do. True? Your God is the creator. And he's screaming at us here, I think, partly to say, look, David's in a mess. He's with the enemy. How's he going to get out of this? Watch what I can do. Look at the mercy. I'm going to show him. And he does that often. And sometimes we don't even see it. We don't even know what's going on because we're not looking. And what instrument does the Lord use to rescue his servant from this incredible dilemma? The commanders of the Philistine army. This isn't the first time the Lord has used his enemy, the Philistines, to save his servant, is it? Remember when Saul had David surrounded and almost captured in that wilderness back in chapter 23? There was no way out. And he knew it. And all of his men knew it. And out of the blue, a messenger shows up to King Saul and says, The Philistines have attacked. Here, 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 and here. And Saul says, Oops, I've got to go. And all of a sudden they disappear. And David and his men are sitting there going, What just happened? I don't know. Ever had any situations like that? In Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14, we need to to not only know this, we need to know it so well that we use it. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the paths of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Why is that text there? Because we're not only thinking in a small box. It's a microscopic box. Or if we are thinking and knowing the Lord, when something happens, it's like, where's the box? I'm in it. I crawled back into it. I was just getting to see how big and great God is and trust him when things are going really bad and they might continue going bad, but I still trust them with it and then I'm back in this hole again. These passages and these stories in the Old Testament are meant to build our faith by giving us concrete examples You know how when you're trying to teach something, or this happened to me all the time, especially in classes, teaching high school, but with your kids as well, you get this great principle, you you think it up, you may have even worked on it, and you're trying to teach it, and then you get off track and you tell some story that had some connection that you remember, but it's not going to make a connection for them. What are they going to remember? The story. Every single time. The Old Testament has true stories to illustrate biblical principles about who God is, who we are, and what's what. And that's why we should love them. Now something else we need to make sure everybody hears today. Our text does not carry a guarantee for me. 
In other words, it does not promise me that if I get my life so tangled by my own cleverness and foolishness and off track by my own short-sighted decisions that the Lord will certainly rescue me from my mess because what he's done for David may not be done for me. Can we still trust him? Yeah, because he knows what I need to go through. And he knows how it will end up. And if I'm truly his, it'll point to him and bring glory to him alone. So the text teaches, it does teach the principle, though, that even in our foolishness and messes, we are still no match for God who has thousands, I love the way one commentator said this, this way, quote, he has thousands of unguessable ways by which he rescues people, even by the mouths of Philistines, their counsel with each other. He can make the enemy service as a friend. He not only prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, but also has the strange knack of making the enemies prepare the table. We need to recognize that, and it's okay and great to ask God to do stuff like that, but to still trust him with whether he actually does exactly that or something else really creative. Like Bobby? Your life has been two-a-days for a couple of months, really. And I'm going, thanks, I'm glad it's over. Let me get to the big stuff where I won't mess up and you know, play perfectly and live righteously the rest of my life, right? And God smiles and goes, hey, I know what you need is, is some really tough opponents off and on, some really tough situations some things that will rip your heart out so that you'll know how faithful and good I am, even in those places. And there's a lot of people in this room who can identify with that because you're right there too. Because, see, this isn't all it is. This is God's time to prepare us for eternity with him. But we're here, so we think this is all there is. So the question is, are we thinking a little different? God's ways sometimes are so surprising. Now, once you have some surprising ones, what do we immediately do? Ooh, another surprising one will come up. And then God goes, well, if you know it's going to be a surprise, I, I can't surprise you then. That way I'll have to surprises some other way and he does that so often through people you would never expect through situations in life that you couldn't have made a 10 year plan for anytime ever true every believer should know what it's like to recognize the way of God working to recognize it and be able to say this is what he wants us to get to where this comes from our heart to be able to say, oh, the depth, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, hear that? Unsearchable are his judgments 
And how, here's another great word, inscrutable are his ways, Romans 11.33. Paul knew this. Really, every true believer should. How long will it take for us to realize this ourselves? Well, there's another thing that this chapter screams out at us, and there's probably a lot more than three, but three is about all we can handle today, I think. How about this one? God's mercy. How would you feel with that in? God's mercy is what? You got a good word? I found one. Wasn't mine. Sure wish it was, but I've adopted it. God's mercy is so tenacious. That is a great word. It means it hangs on. It sticks to. It does not let go. God's mercy is so tenacious. Now, back in chapter 27, we saw how David's decision to get away from Saul by living among the Philistines, it was understandable. I mean, he'd be safe from Saul, and he was, but it wasn't wise. He'd been in Israel for quite a long time by this time, and God had never let Saul get him. But David was tired, fed up, does it sound familiar? Extended, had responsibility for too many people, and he just wanted to completely get away, so he does the unthinkable and goes and hides out with his enemies who actually accept him and give him his own city to live in because they thought politically, oh, he's at odds with Saul. He may be on our side now. Maybe he can help us later. All that stuff's going on. David went from trusting the Lord in ways that amazed us when he spared Saul's life in chapter 26. Remember that? Him and Abishai snuck into that camp. And he went from trusting to carrying out his own clever plan in chapter 27. What's the key there? Without consulting the Lord. Yeah, it was clever. There's no record of any consultation with the Lord over this. And here in chapter 29, as David's dilemma plays out, we can see that the Lord take cares of him and then take care, takes care of him in a really extraordinary way. You know, I, I love that word, and I think it was high school before I realized that means, oh, extraordinary. Got it. Extraordinary way. It's striking, isn't it, how the Lord's mercy pursues and sticks to his servants even in their foolishness and what they think are clever designs and plans. To get a feel for the striking mercy of the Lord in this account, think about this. What we mortals tend to do if a child badly messes up some area of their life. Everybody shaking? I do too. What do we do? We either try to rescue them immediately or we get in such an exasperated state of hurt or disgust and disappointment that we have effectively abandoned them to fry in their own mess. Both of these tendencies have big problems. The question is then, is this what God did? Did God say, well, David did this, that's it. 
The Lord observes David marching with the Philistines. Caught in this incredible trap of his own making. Still trying to figure out in his own cleverness a way to somehow get out of it. The fear for his life growing every second. The reality of him about to be a part of engaging his own people and his plan, whatever it really was, looking more and more ridiculous and impotent, but God's mercy tenaciously sticks to and holds on to David even in Philistia. Amazing. The God who saved him from Saul again and again and again will surely save him now. And really we could say save him from himself. God's mercy is perfect in its timing. And in this episode, once again, extremely creative. Christians should be very encouraged by this passage. When you look back on your life, and maybe not so long ago for many of you, it shouldn't be too hard recognizing the times when you depended way too much on your own devices and cleverness and plans, so sure of yourself and your ability to assess and handle your situation, confident you already knew the right way. By the way, all those things, I just went down my life and went, well, one advantage of being 64 is that you got a little better perspective. And I went, yep, that was then, 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 that was then. Look at this, God's still merciful. Immediately you believed God's mercy was all done when what you had cleverly devised turned into disaster and it nearly destroyed you and the people you love. And you thought, that's it. See, when we do that with our kids, we teach them the wrong way. We think, I'm just going to cut them off. Or I'm going to rescue them so they don't learn anything. Is that mercy? So what does this scripture say to you, teach you, and do to your heart? God does not cast off genuine believers. His adopted children in Christ. In our own foolishness. Our foolishness does not evaporate his mercy, and only a great God could use our foolishness to end up accomplishing what he wanted to work in our own hearts. We just don't like the program. There's not a person in here who likes that program, because it can be hard. But does he accomplish it? Yes, he does. You know, we need to think about this in closing because the food's starting to smell really good, especially up here. David wrote the following. You heard from Psalm 86. That was like a bunch of verses saying what this one says. Think about that. David wrote these words. Surely goodness and mercy 
shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Did he write that when he was 18 or when he was old? And you know what? That word mercy, surely goodness and mercy, it's translated that way, or loving kindness, mostly mercy in all the English translations. You know which word it is? We've seen it before. It's hesed. It's steadfast love. So the word follow doesn't really get this, does it? Follow means, oh, I'll kind of see them up there, and I'll go over here and go over here. Oh, where are they? Oh, there they are. I'm following them. No. The word follow is not nearly strong enough. It should read something like this. Surely, and that means of course. It's for certain that God's goodness and steadfast love will pursue me all the days of my life because that's what God's mercy, his steadfast love does. Is David's success then do, ever due to his own savvy or only to the Lord's mercy and steadfast love? That's a good discussion question if you can't think of anything to talk about while we're eating lunch in just a second. But be careful when you start asking that question. Some really great things happen, and you might start recognizing God's working in your life in ways that you've never seen or thought of before. Darkness or light? God is quietly present. God's ways are so many times so surprising, and God's mercy is so tenacious. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God. You are so majestic, so great, so powerful, so all-knowing, so completely full of love for your children, full of mercy and grace. And we confess that we forget who you really are so quick. We thank you that you've given us life so that we can learn in this life how good and faithful you are. And we ask that you'd open our eyes and our hearts to rejoicing in that fact. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand for our benediction. And hopefully the rest of you know the directions on how to do this. We're going to have to set up stuff. Uh, the guys that can. 2 Thessalonians, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word today. Amen. You're dismissed.